Hey, look, I know lots of folks in China. They think we are the dumbest son of a bitches in the world, all right? They laugh at us behind our back. NAFTA cost us 800,000 jobs nationwide, tens of thousands of jobs in the Midwest. How stupid is that trade policy? Welcome to What's Left, a podcast from BuzzFeed News Opinion, where we talk with people at the crossroads of the new American politics. I'm Sarah Leonard, your host in New York City. For generations, perhaps no issue united Republicans and Democrats more than a commitment to reducing barriers to global trade. So when Donald Trump made moves that bucked this trend, renegotiating NAFTA, placing tariffs on Chinese exports, threatening to withdraw from a trade deal with South Korea, he was met with nearly universal condemnation. All of this has been incredibly confusing. But the good thing is that trade, an issue that elites had reserved for themselves, is now being debated by all of us. Today, we're going to hear two stories about trade. First, from Raihan Salam, about how Trump's economic nationalism has sparked a crisis within the Republican Party. And then with sociologist Nicole Ashoff, about how decades of free trade policies helped create the Trump phenomenon we know today. Is it more Raihan? Rehan is a perfectly sound pronunciation of that name as it's spelled. I always say Raihan. I'll um, say it your way. Yeah, it's your name. Great. Yep. This is Raihan Salam. He's a columnist for The Atlantic and the executive editor of the Conservative National Review. I spoke with him in New York. Hey, Rehan. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Great to have you. So the right was really surprised, actually, when it seemed to me when Trump's sort of protectionist position gained him a lot of popularity. Trump is still incredibly popular with Republicans. Why was the party so surprised that Trump's position on trade gained all this popularity, which seems to be holding? Well, I'd say that there are two rival narratives. If you look at the history of Republican economic policymaking, there actually has been this developmentalist or strategic trade-oriented perspective that's been a part of the party for a very long time. And what I'd argue is that the suppression of that perspective or the, um, you know, this notion that it didn't really exist, it wasn't really central to the party's doctrine, it wasn't something that had been debated for a very long time, is actually a more recent notion. The George W. Bush administration, uh, you know, this steel tariffs notwithstanding, was an administration that consisted of folks who really were very committed to free trade, who are really deep believers in it. And in fact, the occasional departures from free trade orthodoxy were uh, really temporary and were done shamefacedly in that era of the party. But if you look to the modern era, if you look at the Nixon presidency, for example, if you look to the Reagan presidency, uh, you know, these were eras in which actually there was an openness to strategic trade. You know, oftentimes, it was framed as, if you want um, free trade, if you want this kind of healthy multilateral trade regime, you occasionally will have to make some departures to protect the political legitimacy uh, of free and open trade, etc. But there always was that countercurrent. And Robert Lighthizer, President Trump's U.S. trade representative, is in fact someone who had served in the Reagan administration, who was actively involved in voluntary export restraints. Um, you know, and that was a, the period when the Reagan administration had embraced industrial policy in the form of CEMATEC and much else. So there always was was this countercurrent that for various reasons was sort of written out of history uh, by the time you get to the 90s and 2000s. Right. So I want to get right into that. So if we think about how 
a position that was more open to things we might call protectionism, evolved to the sort of George W. Bush position or lost out to the George W. Bush position. Why was that? What was that transformation? When you're looking at the 90s, there was a larger intellectual shift in the intelligentsia right and left. There was an embrace of free trade. If you look at the economics profession, for example, you know, this became a a near universal position. And if you are a Republican policymaker, you were looking to those credentialed professionals and you were outsourcing your thinking to them, in effect. So if we look at where we are today, where this sort of preference for more control over a national economy has gained a lot of credence on the right. There's this long tradition that you're describing. Why did this come as such a shock? I mean, it wasn't so long ago that this was more more mainstream thinking. One way to think about it is that there was an argument that happened in one given period of time, and someone won the argument at that time, and then the people who win the argument, they reproduce themselves, right? And then you have some other group of people, some upstarts, who then say, hey, wait a second, we are going to exhume this history that has been marginalized, that hasn't been on the table, because it continues to be useful and relevant in these changed circumstances. And those people, they tend to find, oh gosh, there are all these marginalized cranks out there who are people who are making these arguments in the past and, oh, wait a second, they actually correctly anticipated some of the problems that would arise if, uh, you know, this other path uh, were not taken. So I think that that's basically what happened. There was this tradition out there, but it wasn't really terribly attractive to people. It fell out of fashion. But then suddenly, as circumstances changed, it became newly relevant. Right. So circumstances changed. So if you had to say, what was the trigger that brought back this forgotten strand within the GOP. What was that moment? I guess I would say that there have always been Republicans who've been running in this vein that's, you know, kind of more oriented towards strategic trade and what have you, a little bit more open to state intervention in the economy, particularly if it's consonant with larger foreign policy goals. But the thing is that those candidates, particularly at the national level, tended not to prevail in primary contests. So if you look at someone like Mike Huckabee, for example, if you look at Rick Santorum, these were candidates who really did talk about the industrial base of the country and and how much it had been um, allowed to deteriorate over time. But those candidates never quite made it. Now, Donald Trump was distinctive in all sorts of ways. One of the most distinctive, though, is that he didn't really need to raise large amounts of money. He was able to use free media. He was able to leverage free media in order to carve out a very distinctive lane and and he was able to win because of that. Uh, That was not available to some of these other candidates. Those candidates went through what, you know, some folks call the money primary, right? The idea that there is a winnowing process of candidates to determine who is considered a serious contender. And that winnowing process... You know, that involves, hey, what are your ideological bona fides? Do they align with those, um, you know, the serious people? It's not just money, by the way. It's also the sense that, you know, there is also a primary involving advisors, um, you know, wise women and men, you know, people you need or people one thought one needed to run a serious campaign. And that winning process is what did it, I think. Right. The sort of infrastructure of being a Republican in America. Right. So... Then thinking about what has emerged from this Trumpian moment, the new Woodward book is out. Everybody is quoting the Bob Woodward book. And he writes several times, Chief Economic Advisor Gary Cohen 
um, asked the president, why do you have these views on trade? And Trump replied, I just do. I've had these views for 30 years. Now, this doesn't suggest the most coherent policy necessarily. And so when we're looking at the moves he's making on NAFTA, um, the trade war he's entering with China, um, is he representing some sort of coherent economic nationalism through these policies? Or is this essentially a political message that's saying, I care about American workers, I'm going to blow up this consensus? There are a few different levels. One of them is just purely instinctive. Uh, I believe he is entirely sincere. The record shows that he really has expressed protectionist sentiment for a very long period of time, certainly stretching back to the 1980s. That much is, is absolutely true. But then the question is, how does that relate to the larger political conversation? How does that relate to constituencies within the party? Which particular aspects of that resonate? And what I'd say is, well, yes, you know, I think that there's absolutely a place for free and open trade. Uh, I, I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. It is a, a noble aspiration. I just think that it it helps to have a more institutional perspective. I don't think that's how Donald Trump thinks of it. I think Donald Trump tends to think of it um, in almost autarkic terms. That is that, you know, you have one singular closed economy that's doing battle with other economies. And, you know, the idea that that is the level at which this conflict works. And, and that's not how I think of it. Um, but I think that that is how it works at the instinctive level. Then the question is the lighthizers of the world. Other people have a more sophisticated understanding of these issues. How do they translate their positions to him? Are they able to frame this as, aha, we will use the size of our market, we will use our leverage to secure concessions that we want to uh, yield a global trading system that is more favorably um, oriented towards our interests. If Trump, in fact, has bypassed the sorts of economic advisors and the people who typically would set trade policy for the GOP, what constituency is he truly representing within the party? And how are these constituencies going to be reconciled within the Republican Party? Or will trade change the Republican Party? Uh, well, trade is an issue that both is a kind of substantive issue, a substantive policy question, a very important one. It's also an issue that has really huge symbolic valence. Uh, when you're looking at the U.S. workforce, the portion of that workforce that is now in manufacturing and tradable employment more broadly is actually pretty small relative to services. Nevertheless, there are many people who are not engaged in the tradable sector for whom this feels really important. It's resonant, this idea that we are going to vindicate American national interests when we are entering to trade agreements and, and what have you. So I think that politically it's really important because it speaks to other cleavages as well. Cleavages around really really class um, about the class orientation of the party. This is a political party that has significantly changed its class composition over time. And that's a really complicating factor. Uh, this was... Say, say what you mean by that? The Republican Party in earlier eras was pretty reliably the party of more affluent people, particularly more affluent white voters. Uh, and, you know, this is going back to a time when the electorate was far whiter than it is today. And now, when you're looking at the electorate, you see more of a cleavage. Now, the cleavage isn't purely about income. It's also about education to some degree. It's certainly about region. It's about density and much else. But if you're looking at the Republican Party now, there is a very big non-college educated component. Talking about a working class electorate is always tricky 
because, of course, different people mean different things when they talk about the working class. We could do an entire episode of on course. whether education is a proxy for class. Of course, of yes. course, of course. You know, and partly it's just a matter of what is the easiest statistic we can kind of, yeah. you know, cook out. So I think that there are all of these kind of shifting coalitions, shifting sensibilities. There are ways in which traditionalist voters who are open to, quote unquote, economic populism and other enormously, um, you know, variegated, hard to define term, um, but who are at least a winnable constituency by Republicans. But, you know, whether or not their allegiance will be cemented is, of course, an open question. You've written a little bit about how the Trump administration is now engaging with Mexico over the NAFTA deal. Um, The newly elected leftist president, known as AMLO, is coming in. They're trying to close the trade deal first. And you've raised the question of why Trump wouldn't collaborate, in fact, with AMLO in thinking about, you know, AMLO also is interested in industrial policy. He is actually interested in making it so people don't feel the need to migrate for economic reasons to the United States. He has talked about taking in refugees from Central America. In theory, these are all things that it seems like Trump would actually want. Do you think that actually these two presidents, left populism, right populism, actually have some common ground here? I think the Trump presidency will be consumed by scandal and investigation for the most part. Uh, Whether or not the president is going to pursue some really new distinctive diplomatic course, I I find it a little bit hard to believe. Lopez Obrador has his own reasons to be skeptical about overtures from uh, President Trump. But, you know, fundamentally, when I'm thinking about this kind of right populist politics, when I'm thinking long term, 10, 20, 30 years from now, how it might evolve, I do believe that when Americans are thinking about Mexico and the Mexican state, you know, what are the chief barriers to the kind of productivity and flourishing that we'd want a partner country to have, particularly when we think about reorienting our economic strategy away from an over-reliance on China? You know, it just seems to me as though you want a Mexico that is a, just a much more affluent country than it is today. And I do think that right populists have reason to be invested in that sort of outcome. And I think that someone like Lopez Obrador, he's very interested in creating a more capable, more egalitarian and more effective state uh, in ways that parallel the goals of at least some right populist voters. And more broadly, I think this also applies to, you know, the U.S. conflict with China. Our conflict, in my opinion, is less with Chinese workers and the Chinese people. It's really about a Chinese state that is suppressing consumption among Chinese workers. If the Chinese state actually took a different, more egalitarian, more inclusive kind of approach, it would redound to the benefit of Americans, to people around the world, certainly to Chinese, and it would actually really align with the goals of a lot of conservatives vis-a-vis what we want from our relationship with China. So I always think of it as in kind of Cold War terms. Like, don't frame this as the United States versus China, just as, you know, you don't frame it as we hate the Russian people, frame it as this particular government is engaging in predatory behavior vis-a-vis its own working population. We want that population to enjoy greater freedom and also greater prosperity. And the chief obstacle to that is a predatory government. That would be a way better way of talking about this, a way more resonant way of talking about this, both in the United States and globally. But President Trump, he is really locked into this more adversarial kind of framework, and I think that's a mistake. Raihan, I really want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Trump's protectionist moves have sparked all kinds of anxiety within the right. 
But Democrats, too, hate these policies. Which raises the question, how did we get such consensus for so long from our two main political parties? To answer that, I spoke with Nicole Ashoff, an author and sociologist who has argued that Trump's election signals a deep crisis for the free trade consensus. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? It's going well. So let's start with globalization as an idea. Um, There's one story about globalization that goes, um, the world is getting closer together through communication, through cheap transportation. Um, And this allows countries to specialize in what they're best at. And we can think of the world as one big economy, creating more wealth, creating more efficiency. So this actually sounds pretty good. Um, What is wrong with this sort of definition of globalization? Well, I think it's it's a partial definition, and it's also kind of a utopian vision at the same time. So if we want to think about globalization as a kind of set of structural processes that bring the world closer together, that, you know, sort of increase trade, increase communication, that's certainly true. Uh, and that's something that's been steadily increasing, you know, for the past 30 or 40 years. And in many ways, that has been a good thing. But if we talk about it, Just in those terms, we kind of erase the political elements of globalization and really kind of ignore the fact that globalization as we have it today is a really fundamentally a political project uh, and was a response to the kind of political, economic and social crisis of the 1970s. So we see this kind of reorientation and part of it is an economic reorientation in the sense that companies restructure, auto companies restructure uh, and start reorganizing their production chains. But we also see a pretty dramatic political reorganization, you know, in in the emergence of what we now call neoliberalism. But what that really was, the neoliberal project, was a kind of, you know, counterattack against the gains of organized labor in the 1970s and trying to redirect on the terms of big business, uh, you know, the way they wanted the country to go. Right. And so concretely, what does that look like for, say, an auto worker in the late 1970s? Well, the late 1970s is a really chaotic moment because in the late 70s, you start, you see some really big gains, not only for auto workers, uh, but also for for other you know unionized workers, construction workers, taxi drivers, teachers, you start to see a lot. You see a lot of militancy, uh, and you do see wins and you see wage gains. But you see this kind of dramatic reversal, right, in the early 1980s, and you see huge defeats, right. So it's it's really kind of a, a, a whipsaw feeling if you're an auto worker then, and all of a sudden the kind of status quo that you thought you know, really, okay, labor is a junior partner. Yeah, we don't get along with our boss, but we have some power and we have a seat at the table. Suddenly the rug gets pulled out from under you. Your union is making major concessions and and this sort of public assault on your kind of contribution to society and your value as a worker. And so, you know, we're talking about auto workers, but we're here to talk about trade. And so when we think about how these things connect together, it seems to me from what you've written, you see companies threatening workers through trade. So if you guys insist on having higher wages, we're going to move this factory somewhere else, or we're going to trade for the sorts of things that you were previously producing. So how does trade become sort of a threat? 
trade becomes a threat as a, one part of this sort of bigger kind of neoliberal turn, right? This idea that we have this emergent globalized economy and companies are being pressured from competition overseas. And all of a sudden it's either, if you're a worker, right, on the assembly line, you're either with us or against us. And you're either going to accept concessions and keep your job, or we're going to move your job, right, to, to another country. And this becomes um, really detrimental as a kind of story that's told to destroy union organizing efforts and really to destroy morale. But the ultimate result uh, is a kind of shifting public consciousness, right? And our understanding of the role of workers and trade becomes completely different uh, than it was in the 1970s. Right. And I want to dig into that because something that's been so notable about this moment is that previously, for the last couple decades, Democrats and Republicans have shared sort of a common vision of what trade is in putting forward things like NAFTA, the Trans-Pacific Partnership pushed by the Obama administration. And so there's been sort of a consensus around trade that trade is good, even while labor pushed back. And so there's a period where trade's sort of contentious and labor's saying, wait, this isn't benefiting us. And we move to sort of a moment of consensus where everyone from, you know, Bill Clinton to Obama to any number of Republican presidents um, are pushing free trade deals. And so how does this become a kind of consensus? Well, it's an interesting story. And, you know, as usual, I think we as Americans have a really short memory. But when NAFTA was being negotiated in the early 90s, it was extremely contentious. And when Bill Clinton kind of threw his two major constituents, which are labor and the environmental movement, under the bus in, you know, supporting NAFTA, a lot of people were really uncertain about what was going to happen, right? At that time, Mexico has a huge economic crisis at the end of 1994. We're in the the midst of negotiating the WTO, right? Uh, No one's really sure if people are going to actually pass NAFTA, right? So it's a really contentious moment. Fast forward like 25 years, and that's just like a distant memory, right? We, it all seems very efficient and rational. And the way that we think about NAFTA now, particularly, you know, vis-a-vis Trump and his kind of blustering tweet threats of Canada and in the broader trade war, right? The global trade war against China it somehow comes across as being this kind of nice, rational project that we we should just restore NAFTA and then make some minor adjustments. But I think this is also a really big mistake. I think we have to really situate it within this kind of political moment if we're going to be able to sort of have a clear picture of where to move forward. Right. And we are in a sort of a brand new political moment when it comes to trade in that, you know, Sanders was a critic of NAFTA. Clinton was for NAFTA and seemed to pay a price for that with some Democratic constituencies. Trump has some opinion on NAFTA, which is antithetical to what it has been in the past. It's not clear exactly what he wants it to be. But this position has proved very popular in this sort of populist moment. And so I wonder if you could tell me, why has this criticism come back? I think people just you know, by the early 2000s, really thought that this was kind of an established p- position that wasn't going to be threatened, despite, 
all the ultra globalization movements of the 90s, you really see a quiet period in the early 2000s after September 11th. But I think that the 2008 financial crisis really throws everything into the air again. And you start again these kind of critiques of not only free trade, but neoliberalism as a project, right? Uh, and when co- you, you're using the word neoliberalism, I'm going to make you tell me what it means. It's a very sloppy shorthand, but if we want to think about neoliberalism, again, as a political project, right, as a kind of response to the crisis of the 1970s, and it's both an ideological and a kind of practical policy-oriented project that aims to weaken labor. It wants to uh, sort of re-envision what the role of the state is. And really, you know, if we think about NAFTA, one of the primary purposes of NAFTA was to control the state and to, and to keep the state in line with these kind of neoliberal goals. So if we think about the moment right now that we're in, we're really seeing this kind of crisis of this neoliberal project. And this, the critiques of the neoliberal project and what the right calls globalism really have come to the fore again in the last couple of years. We're seeing the Trump response, which is not business as usual. It's a kind of right wing kind of nationalist response to the kind of critiques of NAFTA and free trade and the broader kind of third way project that we've seen over the past couple of decades. And so what we're seeing from him is, you know, and the reason why it seems so irrational and so crazy to your average reader and watcher of the news who's saying, like, why are we now hating Canada? Like, I thought Canada was our friend, right? And what we're seeing is really a kind of right-wing nationalist response to say the U.S. is losing its power on the global stage. Deals like NAFTA uh, weaken our sovereignty. And the way that we're going to take that back is to get rid of this kind of multilateral global governance kind of approach and just do whatever is right for the United States. This is Trump's approach. And so before we dive all the way into Trump's approach, Right now, you know, you can understand how post-2008 people lost faith in the economic structures that were supposed to be working really well, because suddenly nothing worked very well. But today, you know, stock market is booming, unemployment is down. Why is this so popular now? Economic indicators as they are presented, right? So the stock market is booming, and we have low unemployment, and we have record levels of of profitability, these things are not helping your average person. The the very well-off, the top 10%, the top 1% have done very well, and they continue to do well. But for a lot of people, they feel like they are permanently left out. If we're looking at this low unemployment rate, it's not that people are getting great jobs. They're getting low-paying service jobs. They're getting part-time jobs. The work that's being created is not good work for the majority of the population. So we're really seeing an extremely divided country. And so they're looking for answers and they're angry. And so now thinking about Trump's policies, if I were to imagine a viable left policy for trade, I would think, okay, it would be something that would protect workers, include wage protections, maybe collective bargaining protections. And looking at what Trump is proposing in the deal with Mexico, which 
may or may not include Canada, he's proposing things like requiring that any car built in North America have roughly 40% of its content made by workers earning $16 an hour or more. There are some protections for collective bargaining in Mexico built into this agreement. In a way, this looks like something that the left, labor, has been wanting for a very long time. Is Trump just totally eating the left's lunch on this and actually doing something that's pro-labor? No. Uh, I think that, I'll just say that very bluntly, no. I mean, the kind of tweaks that we're seeing in Trump's NAFTA deal and the kinds of things we're seeing for auto workers are extremely minor. Um, you know, we're talking about very small shifts that the auto companies are totally fine with and are really not going to address any of the very deep issues for U.S. and Canadian auto workers over issues of health and safety, over issues of work-life balance, and not to mention, you know, the extremely low wages and dire working conditions of Mexican auto workers. This is just a, a sort of populist gloss over what is really just a sort of general minor reworking, it appears to be so far, of, of the NAFTA deal. Really, it's, it's very much a sort of political story what's happening. It's about Trump being able to say, look, I care about the U.S. You know, working class, but I'm also you know, taking, you know, I'm a tough sort of negotiator, I'm making a deal, and I'm standing up for the American people, right, in a very sort of nationalist way, saying, I'm going to make the deal, and you're either, you're on board or you're out, and I don't care. So then, if we are looking at a deal that doesn't actually benefit that many workers, what is the constituency for this deal? Labor unions can read a deal and know whether something is going to benefit them or not. Who is Trump appealing to with this deal? Well, this is an interesting question, and this is why we have to think about this in terms of, you know, trade as a terrain that geopolitics are played out on. I heard there's like 500 or so corporate advisors who have seen drafts of the NAFTA deal. Um, But for the most part, big business is kind of divided on Trump's policies, both in terms of NAFTA, but also in terms of China, because it's like, in part, you know, they're very nervous about the declining sort of hegemony of the United States, particularly with regard to China. They're nervous about the advancements China has made in terms of technology. Uh, But at the same time, the global economy is extremely interconnected. They do a ton of business, both in North America and with China. So it's not so easy to just throw it out the window, which is why Originally, Steve Bannon, when he was on the Trump team, was saying, let's have this huge spectacle and stand up at the White House Correspondents' Dinner and tell everyone that NAFTA is canceled and it'll be amazing, right? Trump didn't end up doing that. He's sort of in sort of taking a more moderate kind of right-wing nationalist approach. But it's very much about show. It's very much about sort of repositioning the U.S. politically. So then you're making the case that this is sort of more political than economic, but it's speaking to a real anxiety people have. So then that raises the question of what the left's alternative to this is. And it seems to me, you know, there's a sort of nostalgia route where we just want to bring back manufacturing, like Trump describes, or maybe we, you know, automation is making it so we only have to work one day a week. That sounds awesome. What kind of proposals are out there? What are we looking at from the left? And 
How is that different from what Trump has to offer? In February, I believe it was, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and I think Gillibrand, a few other senators, wrote a letter to Trump about NAFTA, uh, basically saying, look, we also have a, a deep critique of NAFTA, right, from the perspective of workers, from the perspective of communities, from the perspective of people who care about the environment. And, you know, these are the kinds of, it was like a three-page letter talking about the kinds of changes that they wanted. And they were pretty big changes, basically saying NAFTA was written by big business and it's extremely damaging to workers, to farmers, to the environment. And we want to make changes and we want to make really big changes to actually respect workers, to prevent companies from, you know, just outsourcing as punishment, to actually prevent toxic dumping, you know, all kinds of things. Of course, none of that is going to be at all included in the Trump deal. And I think it does a disservice when sort of mainstream media makes it seem like the right and the left are on board and they are mostly in agreement about how NAFTA should be restructured. That's fundamentally untrue. I think if we think more broadly about what the left wants, there are some, some kind of voices out there. Like the UE, for example, uh, put out a piece about Trump's tariff policies and, and kind of reiterated a, a very old line, which is basically saying we need an industrial policy. We don't need tariffs. Like tariffs aren't going to solve the problems of the American working class, let alone the Mexican or the Canadian working class. So the idea is not necessarily that tariffs are always bad or that we shouldn't have trade policy. It's saying we have to actually think more broadly and have a transformative vision, an industrial policy that has some short-term goals, but also long-term goals. Right. So when we think about those long-term goals, are we in fact talking about trying to bring back the world before trade liberalization? Are we talking about, as Trump would say, bringing back manufacturing? I think we shouldn't frame it in terms of bringing back trade or bringing us back to some time in the past, because that's a fantasy and it ends up in this kind of toxic nostalgia, which is not useful. I think if we're moving forward, we have to think about, well, what do we want? Uh, well, we want good jobs for people. We want people to have an education, have healthcare, but we also want to create a greener economy. We want to be able to use technology to improve our lives. Like these are basic things that we can then work into an industrial policy, right? So instead of saying, well, we're going to just slap some tariffs on, you know, this country or that country so we can look tough, we should really instead be thinking about, well, how do we actually create good jobs? So that might for some time involve some kind of protectionism. But if we're thinking in the long term, it can't just be about these kind of band-aid fixes. Right. And it's crazy because I think for a long time, the left has criticized the fact that trade deals are made among elites and people from labor, for example, aren't let in the room. And all of a sudden, that's all been broken open, but it's been replaced with another myth, which is that by making these small changes to NAFTA and so forth, Trump is restoring the power of the American working class. Yeah, that's completely untrue. Just as the original NAFTA negotiations were all secret with no input from regular people, that's exactly what's happening again. It's again a sort of corporate elite-led project. So nothing's really changed except potentially more chaos. Well, that's good news. Nicole, 
Nicole, I want to thank you for joining us and walking us through trade. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. In thinking about this episode, one of the things we had in mind was this. A lot of commentators' reactions to Trump's approach to trade has been shock and horror. But too often, that horror for Trump's chaotic, dishonest approach sends us right back to where we were before. Consensus trade policies that honestly weren't working for most people anyway. In telling new and better stories about trade, we can expand our options. We can think about a green economy, higher wages, even less work. That's it for this week's show. Let us know what you think about trade at what's left at buzzfeed.com. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference and helps new people learn about the show. What's Left is produced by me, Sarah Leonard, Patrick McMenamin, Ben Dalton, Dara Levy, Dan Bauza, and Jake Bunger. What's Left is a production of BuzzFeed News Opinion. See you next week, where we'll discuss what's left. What's left?